Back in 1972, Australia was in the process of radical social change. There was an interracial love affair between an African-American man and a white woman. That ruled the show out for American TV. There were lots of homosexual themes throughout the show. It made it virtually impossible for anyone else in the world to screen it, except for Australia. This Way Out, the international LGBTQ radio magazine. I'm Lucia Chappell. India's Supreme Court mulls marriage equality, Sri Lanka's top court clears a path to sex law reform, and how Australia's number 96 broke TV's straight ceiling. Those stories and more this week now that you found This Way Out. I'm Brian DeShazer. And I'm Wendy Natividad. With News Wrap, a summary of some of the news in or affecting LGBTQ communities around the world for the week ending May 13th, 2023. India's Supreme Court is reserving judgment on marriage equality. The court received the testimony of almost two dozen people in consolidated cases during its hearings from April 18th to May 11th. Reportedly, sympathetic Chief Justice D.Y. Chandrachude headed the five-judge panel. They announced that they would rule strictly on provisions of the Special Marriage Act 1954, which deals with civil marriage. India's complicated marriage laws also include the Hindu Marriage Act 1955 and the Foreign Marriage Act 1969. During the hearings on May 3rd, the Solicitor General of India's federal government, argued against opening civil marriage to same-gender couples. He claimed that the High Court cannot foresee possibly negative fallout of a pro-equality decision. He announced that the administration of anti-equality Prime Minister Narendra Modi would set up a panel of cabinet officials headed by the cabinet secretary. That group would consider whatever administrative steps are necessary to address the concerns of same-gender couples. Modi's government has consistently claimed that only Parliament can change marriage laws. No one knows at this point when India's top court will issue its decision. If it's affirmative, queer couples in the world's second most populous nation will be able to legally marry. Sri Lanka's Supreme Court has ruled that repealing laws that criminalize same-gender sex would not violate the Constitution. Equality advocates call the May 9th decision a historic development but it's just one small step toward removing the statutes that jail and fine people who engage in private, consensual, adult same-gender sex. Sri Lanka's federal government has announced that it will not oppose a private member's bill to repeal the British colonial-era laws. However, it's not clear whether the bill will officially get affirmative support. Major opposition parties have not yet announced their positions on the bill. It's also uncertain if activists can successfully convince a majority of the 225 members of parliament in the South Asian nation to vote for repeal. The United States Supreme Court decided on May 11th that a transgender Guatemalan woman can stay in the U.S. to pursue her asylum request. In a somewhat surprisingly unanimous ruling, the 6-3 conservative majority agreed that Estrella Santos Zacarias' life could be in danger if she is forced to return home. As a teenager, she was raped and endured death threats in her Central American nation. Sato Zakaria fled to the U.S. but was deported in 2008. 
For the next 10 years, she lived primarily in Mexico, where she was also raped and assaulted. Finally, immigration authorities detained her, trying to re-enter the U.S. in 2018. It was the first majority opinion written by Associate Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson since she joined the High Court last year. The newest justice respectfully referred to Santos Zacharia by her preferred name and pronouns. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration will now use an individualized risk assessment questionnaire for all prospective blood donors regardless of their sexual orientation or gender. That once again relaxes restrictions on blood donations by sexually active gay and bisexual men. However, potential donors will not qualify if they've had a new sexual partner, more than one sexual partner, or anal sex in the past three months. Some activists are still hailing the latest guidelines as progress since 2015. That was when the FDA dropped its lifetime blood donation ban by men who have sex with men, but required at least one year of total sexual abstinence. The agency reduced the year to three months in 2020 as blood donations plummeted during the COVID pandemic. The New York-based gay men's health crisis criticized the new FDA guidelines. The restrictions also exclude anyone taking medications to treat or prevent HIV infection, including antiretroviral therapy or pre-exposure prophylaxis, PrEP, and post-exposure prophylaxis, PEP, until three months after their last dose. Those drugs can delay the detection of HIV. The advocacy group says, condoms and PrEP are cornerstones of HIV prevention. This week brings another regrettable roundup of bills attacking LGBTQ rights in Republican-controlled U.S. states. It starts with Indiana Governor Eric Holcomb signing a bill that requires school officials to notify a student's parent or guardian in writing if they ask to be referred to by a different pronoun, title, or word. He also put his pen to a law that mimics Florida's original Don't Say Gay law, banning any classroom discussion of human sexuality until the third grade. Holcomb also pushed a bill through the Republican-majority state legislature that forbids local prohibitions of conversion therapy, the debunked claim that LGBTQ people can pray away the queer. North Dakota's Republican governor, Doug Burgum, signed a bill telling public school officials that they cannot withhold or conceal information about a student's transgender status from the student's parent or legal guardian. The bill passed by the GOP-dominated legislature also requires students and staff to use campus bathrooms, locker rooms, and other sex-segregated facilities based only on their biological sex. Then he signed a bill that defines male and female in state law as being based on one's sex at birth. Burgum finished up by denying North Dakotans' birth certificate changes due to gender identity change. Transgender minors and their families and individual and community health care providers are challenging Montana's new law preventing transgender young people from accessing gender-affirming health care. The law also puts health care providers in legal jeopardy if they provide that care. The queer advocacy group Lambda Legal filed their lawsuit on May 9th in the 4th Judicial District Court in Missoula County. They're joined by the national and state chapters of the American Civil Liberties Union. The lawsuit claims that the legislation violates Montana's constitutional guarantees of equal protection, due process, privacy, dignity, and the right to seek medical care. Washington's Democratic Governor Jay Inslee has okayed protections from estranged parents for transgender people under the age of 18 who are receiving gender-affirming health care. The bill he signed on May 9th also applies to licensed shelters and private volunteer host homes. 
providers were previously required to notify parents or legal guardians within 72 hours when a minor came into their care. Under the new law, they can instead contact the State Department of Children, Youth, and Families with that information, bypassing the potential intervention of estranged parents. Minority Republicans justified their opposition by calling the measure a violation of parental rights. Finally, Robin Hood, Robin Hood, riding through the glen. With his band of men, feared by the bad, loved by the good, Robin Hood, Robin Hood, Robin Hood. I know there were people who were upset that the play was being considered to be put on. Uh, I think there was worry about protests and things like that. That's Wayne Barker. He's the Northwest Allen County School Superintendent who shut down a production of Marion, planned by the students at Fort Wayne, Indiana area Carroll High School. The queer-themed play is based on the premise that Maid Marion was, in fact, Robin Hood. According to a report by Ella Abbott on local public radio station WBOI, Barker bowed to a few phone calls from parents who complained about the play even though they had never seen it. Defiant students decided to mount the play at an off-campus venue. They launched a fundraising campaign and lured Fort Wayne native Blaine Pressler to come home from New York to direct the production. The out actor told WBOI he's doing it to oppose censorship. Art is very, very important and representation is really important. And both of those being at risk with this um, made me want to do it. Sophomore Peyton Stratton plays Maid Marian in the production, which means she's also playing Robin Hood. A few months ago, we thought this was completely hopeless, and it feels very earned in a way to be like, wow, we did it, and it's happening. The crowd-funded production is scheduled for a one-night-only performance at the Fullinger Outdoor Theater in Fort Wayne on Saturday, May 20th. That's News Wrap, global queer news with attitude, for the week ending May 13th, 2023. Follow the news in your area and around the world. An informed community is a strong community. News Wrap is written by Greg Gordon, edited by Lucia Chappell, produced by Brian DeShazer, and brought to you by you. Thank you. Help keep us in ears around the world at thiswayout.org, where you can also read the text of this newscast and much more. For This Way Out, I'm Wendy Natividad. Stay healthy. And I'm Brian DeShazer. Stay safe. Anthony Van Brown, and you're listening to This Way Out, the weekly LGBTIQ plus radio magazine for all our gender and sexually diverse communities around the world and those who love them. Our listeners support This Way Out in many ways. By subscribing to our e-newsletter, email us at info at thiswayout.org. And through your financial contributions to our program. More information about how you can give is online at thiswayout.org. Thank you.
watching on TV in 1972. Depending on where you lived, it may have been Steptoe and Son or Sanford and Son, All in the Family or Till Death Do Us Part, Coronation Street, Guadalupe, or The Guiding Light. If you were lucky enough to live down under, your TV set was the site of an amazing breakthrough for LGBTQ visibility. This Way Out Sydney correspondent Barry McKay describes the Australia that gave birth to a history-making soap opera and introduces us to a new documentary that celebrates it. Back in 1972, Australia was in the process of radical social change. Attitudes to sexuality were beginning to shift. Many of the baby boomer generation had reached the age of 21 and had gained the right to vote. Women's Lib and Gay Lib had found their feet and the contraceptive pill had become available to young women. The counterculture had largely been introduced to us from the US and the UK and the musical Hair first introduced Australian audiences to nudity on stage in 1969. Late in 1972, a new left-wing Labour government which introduced major reforms to Australian society was voted into power after 23 years of Conservative rule. And on our television sets, a new revolutionary soap opera had hit our screens earlier that year, which changed Australian television's attitudes to sexuality from there on. It was called Number 96, and it's the subject of a new documentary that premiered at this year's Mardi Gras Film Festival in Sydney. The documentary is called Outrageous, the Queer History of Australian TV, and I recently spoke to its director, Australian TV historian Andrew Mercado. First of all, you start your documentary with the quote, which country was the first in the world to broadcast LGBT characters? Well, I think this is the point of the documentary. I think one of the things I discovered in 2019, which was the 50th anniversary of Stonewall, was that there were a lot of pop culture and queer reporters talking about the greatest LGBT moments in the 50 years since Stonewall. And I could see there that Australian TV wasn't getting the recognition it deserved. So I thought, right, it's time to set the record straight and tell the rest of the world that it was Australia who was the first to broadcast lesbian, gay, bisexual and transsexual characters on primetime TV. On, in TV drama? Correct. Okay, what was number 96 and how did number 96 begin and why was it so daringly ahead of its time? Number 96 was created because at the time the third rating network in Australia was the O10 network. They were on the verge of bankruptcy. They did not have a hit show. So they decided to gamble really big. And you know, sometimes when you gamble big, you get a huge payoff. And that's what's happened with number 96. They asked for a racier version of Coronation Street. Coronation Street was a big hit in Australia at the time. They could see the potential of a soap opera working. But in 1972, Australia Australians were kind of 
eager to change. We were kind of emerging from decades of conservative rule and really draconian censorship. And free-to-air TV in Australia took advantage of the mood in Australia. And when they said, we want a racier version of Coronation Street, they got one and the audience was waiting and ready for it. Number 96 was extremely daring for the time. Yes, there was nudity. Yes, there were taboo subjects being talked about in this drama for the first time on TV, sometimes in the world. And it was a very racy show and it took full advantage of its adults-only time slot at 8.30pm every weeknight. Uh, and I think this is one of the main reasons why it didn't go around the world in the way that, say, Neighbours did or a country practice. You know, you could edit out maybe some of the nudity in number 96, but you could not edit out some of the themes and some of the storylines. There was an interracial love affair between an African-American man and a white woman early on in the show, like episode 30. They kissed. That ruled the show out for American TV. Yes, there were lots of homosexual themes throughout the show. So there were just so many elements to the show, it made it virtually impossible for anyone else in the world to screen it, except for Australia. We're looking at what other countries did in terms of representations of LGBT characters on TV drama in the 70s. And yep. Were these positive role models? Well, look, they were trying their very best to do it. Gay men through the 1960s, if you saw them on TV, certainly on Australian TV, they would be victims of poofter bashing. Uh, they would be getting blackmailed for being gay. They were often victims. They were often wimps. And if we look at 1972 around the rest of the world, that was the year that Are You Being Served began on British TV. And, you know, throughout the entire run of that show and afterwards, the show's created and John Inman always steadfastly refused to admit that Mr Humphreys was gay. He minced around the place like the gayest man on TV, but they would never, ever admit that he was a homosexual. And then if you look at American TV, American TV was dipping its toe into positive queer depictions on TV. But they were always one-offs. You know, there was a movie called That Certain Summer, a telemovie with Hal Holbrook and Martin Sheen. But there was a huge to-do around it. All of these advertisers fled. No one would advertise around it. That was 1972. And in 1971, All in the Family had had an episode with a gay footballer in it, which really, really upset President Nixon. When we listen back to the Watergate tapes, we can hear him being totally disgusted that All in the Family had showed that a gay man could be a big, tough footballer and nobody could pick he was gay. He was horrified by that and really angry about it. But you've got to look at that. If that happened once, was that groundbreaking for American TV? Yes, it was. But you know, Archie Bunker meets the man in the pub, one of his old drinking mates, discovers he's gay, kind of goes okay, and then we never see that gay man again. And that's, I think, one of the issues about American TV. They're dipping their toe in, but no one is doing it on a long-running or a regular basis. So tell me, Andrew, how did number 96 
generally portray LGBT characters. It was quite revolutionary what they did and I think what's really telling about number 96's depiction of queer people is that there's no internalised homophobia coming from the writers. The creator of number 96 was a man called David Sale. He was taken to the block of apartments and said that's where we want to set it. What do you think? And he said well I think you'd have to have a whole bunch of diverse characters in there because that's a lot of stories. You'd have to keep that show running. And he just asked straight up. He was a gay man living in Sydney. He knew that there was a big underground gay scene in inner city Sydney at the time and that this apartment block was set in inner city Sydney. So he asked the producers could I have a homosexual couple in the show? And he reports that without even blinking, American producer Bill Harmon said, sure, but give me homosexuality without any deviation. And David Sal took that to be a yes. And what Bill Harmon was actually saying to him is, yes, but don't give me a deviant. Let's avoid the cliches of the past. And so David Sal just wrote in a regular gay couple into the show. And I don't think he or the producer or the actors who would play that role had any idea that what they were going to do was going to be so accepted by the audience. But yes, when number 96 began, there was a gay couple living in the building, although it took a few weeks for them to reveal the true nature of that relationship, as all good soapy should do. The main gay character was played by Joe Hashem. He was uh, Don. Joe Hashem was the most incredible casting for what was such an important role. Joe Hashem wasn't gay in real life, but he literally asked at the audition, when he was asked, how do you feel about playing a gay man on national TV? He sort of hesitated and they said, do you have a problem with that? And he said, well, yeah, I have a lot of gay friends and I want to make sure that we're not going to do anything that's going to reflect badly on him. And, of course, as soon as he said that, the producers went, wow, we've got the right actor here. At the first script reading for Number 96, Joe Hashem came up to him very quietly and said, in this relationship which character is the dominant one. So he was even basically asking back then and was aware of the terminology of who's the top and who's the bottom in this relationship to help them with crafting those characters. So that's an incredibly socially aware person there. I know that Joe Hashem was very interested in all of the social stuff around Aboriginal land rights and women's lib. He was part of all of that. And of course, running hand in hand in that was gay liberation. And he wanted to make sure that he was doing the right thing. And of course, he went above and beyond what any of us would have expected with a beautiful character like that on TV. And he played a lawyer. He did. And I think this is really important too because this is how he accidentally became the hero of the show. So of course what happens then, you've got eight flats in number 96 and the moment any character has a problem, they immediately run to the lawyer. Don, Don, can you help me out? And so that sort of made him the de facto hero in the show. And it's interesting because number 96 ran for over 1,200 episodes and Don, as played by Joe Hashem, was one of only three characters to be there from the beginning to the very end. Tell me about the coming out story of Don Finlayson, played by Joe Hashem in the series, which first aired in 1972 and 
how that particular plot developed. They kept the relationship between Don and his bisexual boyfriend, Bruce. They kept that kind of under wraps. There were clues, but they were very, very subtle. Um, a couple of the critics at the time said th uh, things like, I'm very suspicious about the couple where the men walk around in their underwear. So, you know, they were sort of throwing red herrings out to the audience, but not spelling it out. And certainly in 1972 with barely any mention of homosexuality on TV, it wouldn't have been what most people were thinking. In the story, their next door neighbour, Bev, who uh, was played by the very beautiful Abigail, you can see that she's falling in love with Don and in this episode, she comes on very hot and heavy and basically begs him to sleep with her. And of course, you see him getting all uncomfortable. Please. I know you feel the way I do. You must. Oh, Tom, please. I want you. Believe me, I've never done this, felt this with a man before. Oh, darling. Tom, please, please, please. Darling, don't be afraid. Look, I didn't know you felt this way. Honestly, I'd never... Oh, Look, I thought you knew. Homosexual. Look, Bev, I'm sorry. I, I, I thought this thing between us was just a, a deep friendship. I, I thought you knew about Bruce and me. Oh, God, I'm sorry. Sorry? You filthy, filthy, dirty little queer! And, you know, that was used as a kind of a shocking moment in the show and, and a cliffhanger. And she reacts very, very badly to that news and spends a couple of episodes uh, throwing all sorts of slurs at him. But it's the episode where she comes to her senses and comes to his front door. Look, I want to apologise for the way I acted last night. It was oh, Bev, unforgivable. Bev, there's no need to. But there is. Oh, I've been a stupid fool. Janie knew, she understands, but I, the supposedly sophisticated oh, one, Beth, I didn't it's even... nobody's fault. But it's my fault for not understanding. Everyone's got their own way of life. I realise that now. And that is an incredible moment to the audience because, as some of the people in my documentary have pointed out, you know, you're basically sending this message to the audience. If you would like to be less old-fashioned and more sophisticated, be more accepting um, of the fact that not everybody wants to lead a very straight and narrow lifestyle the way that you're expected to live in 1972 in Australia. Outrageous, the queer history of Australian TV is expected to hit the international LGBTQ plus film festival circuit this year. More on the groundbreaking Australian soap opera number 96. I, I'm not a girl. But you said you'd guessed. I, I... I had guessed nothing of the sort, uh, Miss Ross. Next time on This Way Out, I'm Barry Mackay in Sydney, Australia. Outrageous, the queer history of Australian TV will get its first North American screening through the LGBTQ Toronto Film Festival. You can view it in July for 48 hours via their Film Festival TV app. 
For more information about the documentary, the producer's website is andrewmercado, M-E-R-C-A-D-O, dot com. Thanks for finding This Way Out, brought to you by the nonprofit Overnight Productions. News Wrap was reported this week by Brian DeShazer and Wendy Natividad and produced by Brian DeShazer. Our correspondent was Barry McKay. Billy Preston, A Great Big World, and Blondie performed some of the music you heard, along with the TV themes from The Adventures of Robin Hood and Number 96. Kim Wilson composed and performed our theme music. This We Out thanks listener donors David Hunt and Richard Merck and Brad Payton of Silicon Valley. They help make this program possible, and so can you. Look for This Way Out Radio on social media, email us at info at thiswayout.org, or write to us at P.O. Box 1065, Los Angeles, California, 90078, USA. For coordinating producer Greg Gordon and the entire This Way Out crew, I'm Lucia Chappelle. Thanks for listening online at thiswayout.org or wherever you get your podcasts. And on 5GTR Mount Gambier, South Australia, KUNM Albuquerque, New Mexico, WIUP Indiana, Pennsylvania, and more than 200 other local community terrestrial and internet radio stations around the world, including this one. Stay healthy, stay safe, and stay tuned, y'all.